such as what we have before us today. Thank you for how those passages teach us to practice and to apply our faith, for how they help us grow, for the vital lessons that they teach us. Thank you for, again, this particular dynamic power pack of a portion of Scripture we're looking at this morning. Shock us, we pray, jolt us, wake us up, teach us, get us believing, get us moving forward. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in my opinion, pardon me, this is one of the two oddest stories in this gospel. On a shallow read, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't seem to fit. I mean, it looks like Jesus comes up to this fig tree, and Mark tells us it's not the season for figs. And he comes up, and sure enough, there's no figs. And when there are no figs, he curses it, and it dies. And when the disciples are surprised at the rapidity of its withering, he says stuff about prayer. It's just hard to put together. It's hard to fit on a shallow read, I say. Now, the first part doesn't seem to make sense. The second part, we don't know how to make sense of it because never in 2,000 years has anyone told a mountain to be picked up and cast into the sea and had it happen. So what does this tell us, the fact that this is a jolting portion of Scripture? What's the lesson of that in itself to us? What does it say? It tells us to slow down, tells us to remember that this is the Word of God and to read it like the Word of God. And so to remember that such puzzlers always contain truth from God for us. They always convey perfectly truth from God to us. And often the more puzzling and challenging passages uh, contain the most uh, vital and necessary truth for us. And so then we dig in again in a God-fearing, wise way. And that's what I mean to do with you today, digging into this story. And uh, this is another one of those that I had all this section in one sermon, and the more I worked on it, the more I thought, really going to have to move quick through that part. Oh, it's a shame. I'm really going to have to go through that so fast. Oh, I'm not sure how that's going to do anybody any good if I go that fast. And then I realize, wait, that's because it just needs to be two sermons. So... This morning we're going to look at verses 18 and 19, and next week, Lord willing, we'll look at verses 20 and 22, 20 through 22, and uh, both contain a lot of help and a lot of blessing for us. So, Roman numeral one, let's consider together what Jesus did in verses 18 and 19. What Jesus did. And to understand that, we need to understand the background, specifically fig trees. There are things we need to know about fig trees in order to understand this story, things we probably don't know. Now, the fig tree is a very um, prominent tree in the Bible. This would be a good trivia question, although hopefully most people would know the answer. What is the first kind of tree mentioned in the Bible? Well, it's the fig tree. It's in the Garden of Eden. It's the only specific kind of fruit that we know is in the Garden of Eden. We know that there was a fig tree because there were fig leaves. And so it's all over the land of Palestine as well. It's a major crop. Uh, fig trees grew between 10 to 25 feet in height and uh, were a major source of, of nutrition and uh, was something that was sold and harvested. So the fig tree had uh, distinctive cycles to its life. The mature crop, the crop that was harvested and was sold, appears and is harvested in the months of August through October, August through October, and then sometime in November, all the leaves fall off the tree. But this story, when did this story take place? It's the end of March. It's the start of April. It's not in that season at all. That's why Mark says it wasn't the season for figs in Mark eleven thirteen. It wasn't the time for harvesting figs. That would come later. But... Early in March to April, fig tree leaves start appearing. And always, always when the leaves appear, little fruit appear alongside it. An early fig, if you will. They were called in Hebrew pagim. In Arabic, they were called, called taksh. They were the size of an omelet, uh, an omelet, of an almond. <laughs> omelet would be larger. It was the size of an almond. 
or of a little cherry. Uh, they weren't very tasty, but they were fruit. They were edible. In fact, they were even sold in the market themselves. So this is crucial to note. You cannot understand, understand this story without understanding this. If there are leaves on a fig tree, there will be fruit. It's as much as putting up a sign saying, come here for fruit. Because those little, those little early figs, those pagim, are going to be there. And they can be harvested and they can be eaten in a pinch if you're hungry. If you just want something to eat, they will give nourishment. But if a tree has leaves and no fruit, then it never will have fruit. If there's leaves and not these pagim, there won't be later fruit of figs either. There won't be a harvest later. So very important to understand. Now, this tree that Jesus sees here, it has leaves. Matthew makes a point of that. So that should mean that it has fruit to eat. And it's also why Jesus made a note of it. This one tree stood out because it had leaves. And it's why he went over to that tree. Because the leaves were as much as a sign saying, come get your fruit here. That's very important background. Without understanding that, and a great many lazy critics of this don't understand that. Without understanding that, the story is difficult to understand. Now let's look at the foreground, what Matthew tells us about First, we see Jesus' hunger, and we might be tempted to read past verse 18 quickly, but we shouldn't. Jesus' hunger in verse 18, I've translated it for you this way. And in the early morning, while he was going back into the city, he got hungry. Early morning, so likely he went off without having breakfast. He was eager to get into Jerusalem and start his ministry there for the day. Skipped breakfast, but on that walk through the hills to Jerusalem, he got hungry. Now that in itself is remarkable. You say, why is that remarkable? I get hungry all the time. Well, sure, you get remarkable all the time. You get remarkable. I'm sure you do get remarkable all the time. But you get hungry all the time. But do you remember last week's uh, portion of Scripture? Do you remember that the children were all running through the temple, praising Jesus, singing Hosanna to the Son of David? Do you remember that the, that the uh, authorities asked Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? And it's interesting that he says, yes, that's actually very important, meaning, yeah, I get exactly what they're saying. I, I do acknowledge what they're saying. But then Jesus says, have you never read, and then he quotes Psalm 8, about God perfecting praise from the lips of infants. And that's praise to whom? That's praise to Yahweh. Jesus says, yes, I hear it, and it's perfectly appropriate because Praise to Yahweh comes from the lips of babes. He's making himself to be Yahweh. He's taking the place of Yahweh. Yahweh God. And it's of him that we read, he got hungry. But what's the case about Yahweh God? You probably remember this scripture in Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12. Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12. Every beast of the forest is mine, says Yahweh. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine as well as its fullness. And yet this same Jesus who is that same Yahweh, is hungry. That's a remarkable thing. How can we say that Yahweh is hungry? Because this is Yahweh incarnate. Because of the truth of John 1.14. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Logos, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1.14 says, And the Word, what? Became flesh and dwelt among us became a human being, did not pretend to be a human being, did not put on the mask of a human being, but took on a full human nature, a human nature that could, could become hungry. Or we read in Philippians 2 that he existed in the form of God, but he didn't count that as something to grasp. He humbled himself. He took on human form, took on the form of a slave. Yes, Jesus became a human being. And so you, you ask the question, well, how real was Jesus' humanity well, real enough that his stomach could growl. Real enough that he could bleed and die. And that whole package was the reason why God became man. There was an early work by a, uh, a theologian called Cur Deus Homo. Cur Deus Homo, 
Why the God-man? And this is the answer to that question. Jesus took on human nature that in that nature he might atone for the sins of his people. He might bleed and die. And it's a feature of that nature that he could become hungry. Such was his love for us. Such was his love for his elect that he took on a true human nature. And this is the glory and the meaning of Christmas. This is where our thoughts should go at this time of year. Well, really all year long, but this time serves as a good reminder for it. It is remarkable that he became hungry. Jesus' hunger. And then verse 19a, we say, see Jesus' action. And when he saw this one fig tree, by the way, he came over to it, and nothing did he find in it except leaves only. I translated that very literally so you could see what, was, what stood out to Matthew. He came over to it, this tree that had leaves all over it, but what did he find on it? Nothing did he find on it. Oh, not quite nothing, leaves only. There should be leaves and fruit, but he found leaves only. So now you know why Jesus did this. Now you know why Jesus came over to this tree, though it wasn't the season for ripe figs. You know why he came over to this tree, because it had leaves. And you know why having leaves but no fruit is a thing. It's a big thing. In fact, Mark says very precisely, Mark eleven thirteen, and seeing at a distance a fig tree that had leaves, he went to see if perhaps he could find something, anything on it. Mark says a thing, if he could find a thing on it. He doesn't say if he could find figs on it. Too early for figs. But he should be able to find these early figs, these pagim on it. So when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. So he wouldn't look for figs. He wasn't looking for figs, but he was looking for pagim, these early fruit. Matthew's words are very pointed. Always read Scripture closely. Matthew doesn't say he found no figs. Of course, he didn't find figs. But Matthew says nothing did he find except leaves only. It was advertising that it would have fruit, but there was no fruit. In fact, it would never have fruit. If it didn't have pagim then, it would not have figs later, you see. This is very important. We need to get this in place if we're to understand what the point of the whole story and of what follows is. And here's what follows. Jesus' words in verse 19b. And he says to it, No longer from you let fruit come ever. And right away the fig tree dried up. Now I remind you, as we talked about last week, uh, Matthew tells his story in this part uh, topically. Mark tells it chronologically. It actually is separated uh, by two days. On one day, he curses the fig tree and it begins withering, but it's the next day that the disciples see that it's completely dried up and dead. Um, so he says, no longer from you let fruit come ever. Now, there's no, no denying. Uh, in fact, it teaches us. There's no denying that for Jesus, this is a very unusual act. I mean, what kind of miracles did Jesus do? All of his other miracles were miracles of healing, of giving life, of blessing. They were never for himself. Sometimes they were displaying power and the glory of God, but never were there miracles of judgment. I mean, the closest one to that is where he casts the demons out of the man with the legion, and they go into the pigs, and the pigs jump into the lake. But that's, that's a, an effect it's not something Jesus directly does. Uh, this stands alone as an act of judgment. And you think of Matthew chapter 4, right? When Jesus was far hungrier than this. And Satan tempted him to turn the stones into loaves of bread. And he refused to do that. He wouldn't use his powers to serve himself like this. So this is a very unusual, a very unusual event. And unbelievers have seized on it, or those weak in faith. There's a philosopher named Bertrand Russell who wrote an essay called Why I Am Not a Christian. Uh, from what I read of it, it should have been called Why I Don't Understand Christianity. But, but he gives all of his big reasons, and one of his reasons is this. He doesn't think Jesus is that moral of a character. He thinks this is not a, a moral act, for that Jesus act peevishly. He acted like somebody in a temper, you know, like, like you bark your, your shin on a chair and then you kick the chair. He thinks it's like that. He says, I think 
Buddha was a better person, I th who, if he even lived, but that aside, I think Socrates was a better person. And then you can read in liberal Christians, uh, uh, they say that, uh, well, we can't possibly believe this was a literal story. This, this just doesn't fit. This is not something Jesus would do. It must be a, a parable he told, and then Matthew turned it into a story. Well, is it truly out of character to pronounce a curse on this tree for the purpose of teaching something. Now, to me, there's an obvious answer to that that I actually didn't see in any commentary, but to me, this is an obvious and very sufficient answer. So who's Jesus? He's Yahweh incarnate. And so I think two words, animal sacrifice. What's animal sacrifice? That is God commanding the deaths, the bloody deaths, of tens, no, of hundreds of thousands of animals just to teach a point. Isn't that literally true? That is literally true. Not one of those drops of blood actually atoned for sin. They were all an illustration pointing forth to Christ. But they were a divinely instituted illustration, uh, a parable that took the, the space of some 1,500 years to point forward to the one sacrifice of Christ because he's God because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, because the whole world is his. And in fact, he does use the whole world for his glory. And if it's his desire to use one part of his creation for his glory, well, then why not? And beyond that, Spurgeon remarks very well, although he says, to fell a whole forest has never been considered cruel. Well, he couldn't say that today um, in, our, in the day of tree huggers weeping over fall, fallen lumber. But he said, to fell a whole forest has never been considered cruel, and to use a single barren tree as an object lesson can only seem unkind to those who are sentimental and idiotic. <laughs> Thus spake Spurgeon. Another commentator named McNeil made a very good point. He said, the tree fulfilled a more important function by dying than by living. And it is a false sentiment to think of it as badly treated. The tree's feelings were not hurt by Jesus using it as a living, acting parable here. So uh, it fits perfectly well with God's use of his creation and with the greater lesson that Jesus is teaching by cursing. But there's no denying it's striking so I think that we see in that that God means to say something to us very forcibly. I mean, there's some things that he simply says to us, and then there's some things where he leans across the table, wraps his fingers in our collars, draws us close, and says them. I would say this is in that category. So, Roman numeral two, let's see what Jesus meant by this striking act. What Jesus meant... And to understand that, there's a background that we need to understand that clearly Bertrand Russell did not understand. We need to understand the background of prophetic acts. Just write in the word prophet. Prophetic acts. What am I talking about? Well, very, very often men of God, prophets, were called on to underscore or to illustrate their message by symbolic acts, by undertaking uh, acts that acted out what they were preaching. For instance, the great prophet Isaiah. Isaiah gives his children symbolic names. He's, he's directed by Yahweh to give his children symbolic names. In uh, Isaiah chapter 7, one of his children is named Shear Yashuv, which means a remnant shall return. That's a message right there. In Isaiah 8, we read, Yahweh said to me, take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters concerning Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Now that, by the way, is the longest name in the Bible. I don't know why it never caught on. You'd think some homeschooling family, some homeschooling family would have caught up on this. But anyway, concerning Meher Shalal Hashbaz. We considered Athanasius at one point, but I digress. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jerebekiah, 
And then I drew near to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then Yahweh said to me, call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz. That means swift the booty, hasty the spoil. And that is a, a, a lesson for before, verse 4, the boy knows how to cry out, my father, my, my, mother, my father and my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Now, that's a prophetic act. And uh, more extreme in chapter 20, he was called to walk stripped and barefoot for three years to make a point. That's Isaiah. Jeremiah had many symbolic acts. Uh, for instance, turn to Jeremiah 13, if you will. Jeremiah 13. Yahweh said to me, go buy yourself a linen belt and put it around your loins, but do not put it in water. So I bought the belt in accordance with the word of Yahweh and put it around my loins. Then the word of Yahweh came to me a second time saying, take that belt and take it to the Euphrates and hide it in the water in the crevice of a rock. So he did so. And then after many days, Yahweh said, go back, verse six, and find the belt. And he did. And he, came, he brought it out and it was ruined. It was completely worthless. Well, what was that all about? Verse eight, the word of Yahweh came to me saying, thus says Yahweh, just so will I ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem, this evil people who refuse to listen to my words and walk in the stubbornness of their hearts and have walked after other gods. They'll be just like this worthless belt. Verse 11, for as the belt clings to the loins of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah to cling to me that they might be for me a people, but they did not listen. So you see, this is a prophetic act, and it wasn't the only one. There were a number. In chapter 19, he buys a potter's vessel and shatters it. That's another message. In chapters 27 and 28, he puts a yoke on himself and walks around with that. That's another prophetic symbolic message. Uh, Jeremiah uh, did many such. Another person famous for a number of his is the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 4, He's told to set up a model siege, you know, like, like using Legos if they'd existed at the time. He says, take a brick uh, before you, inscribe a city on it, Jerusalem, Ezekiel 4.1. Set a siege against it. Build a siege wall against it. Set your face against it. And he says in verse 3, this is a sign to the house of Israel. That was a symbolic action to speak to them that God directed him to do. Also in chapter 4, you know that well, how do we say this? God directed Ezekiel to use some really awful fuel for his barbecue. And this was also a symbolic message. I can tell by the chuckles how many of you have read Ezekiel chapter 4. I'll remember it anyway. Uh, in chapter 12, he's told to pantomime sneaking off to exile. That's another symbolic act. Hosea, you know about Hosea, chapters 1 and 3. He's told to marry an immoral woman and lose this immoral woman and redeem this immoral woman. All of this also a symbolic act. Continues to the New Testament. If you were to look at Acts 21, verses 10 and 11, you see a prophet named Agabus who binds Paul's belt on his hands and feet as a message, a prophetic message to Paul. So biblically, it's very common for a, for a prophet to uh, engage in prophetic symbolic actions. And Jesus is who? He's the prophet. That's one of the meanings of Messiah, prophet, priest, and king. And he's the prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18.15. So it's no surprise at all that the prophet engages in a symbolic act. In fact, I'll point out a little something to you. When he entered Jerusalem on a donkey, that was a prophetic symbolic act. Let's see, how many is that? That's one. When he cleaned the temple, that was a prophetic symbolic act. That's two. And here he curses a fig tree. That's another one. How many is that? Well, that's three. And we've seen countless times, but it's probably a multiple of three, how much Jesus and Matthew love things in threes. So here's his third symbolic prophetic act in a, in a space of some 24 hours or so. So we understand prophetic acts. We understand the life cycle of a fig tree. That sets us up to understand a whole lot better what this is all about. So let's look at the foreground and focus on this act. So letter A was prophetic acts. 
Now, letter B is this act. And you've just got to remember the contextual keys. I tell you, when there's a difficult passage, nine times out of ten, context is the key to understanding it. Context is the answer to most everything. So what's the context? Remember, Jesus has come into Jerusalem, and how has Jerusalem greeted him? They didn't know who he was. They had to ask. He'd been ministering for some three or four years around the land of Israel, and the dwelling, the dwellers in the capital of the nation, they didn't know who he was who was walking in through their gates. He goes into the temple, and he finds it a sham. He finds it an outrage, an abomination, and he uh, symbolically judges it by stopping the business that wrongly was going on inside of the temple. And the leaders come out and clash with him. The leaders come out and they try to shut him down. They challenge him. They challenge his right to receive such praise. And, but, but what's more, they show themselves to be biblically illiterate. Remember what Jesus has to say to them. They say, do you hear what these children are saying? And what's Jesus' answer? Have you never read Psalm 8? And these are the leaders of Israel. So this is what he's, he's come into. He's come into what should be the capital of God's kingdom. He's come into what should be a house of prayer where Yahweh is worship that advertises itself as such. You look at it and you see, oh yes, this is a beautiful building where Yahweh is worship. And you look inside of it and you see people dressed like priests and you see a high priest, high priest dolled up as priests. And you see Pharisees walking around with their broad phylacteries and all of their signs of their holiness. And oh yes, this must be a very pious, godly place. And yet inside of it, it's just rot and death and traditionalism and legalism and envy and greed and materialism. Well, you could say it's, it's like a fig tree all covered with leaves, but no fruit. That's the context. So let's consider what Israel should have been. What, what should have greeted Jesus? To understand this, we need to go back to the beginning and we need to remind ourselves what was the model for Israel and is the model for all. Turn back to Genesis 15. And you know when I say turn, I mean please do turn. It will not appear on my mustache. Genesis chapter 15, the first words we read, the word of Yahweh came to Abram and a dialogue ensues. And we read again in verse 4, Behold, the word of Yahweh came to him saying, and then Yahweh is quoted exactly in verses 4 and 5. Verse 6 is the point. Genesis 15, 6 is the point. Then he believed in Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, who is this who believes in Yahweh? This is Abraham, at this point Abram. And what is going on here? Did Abram convince himself that God had good plans for him? Now, this is a dialogue, this part of the sermon. Did Abram convince himself? Did he reason his way to the thought that God had big plans for him? Did he observe that it looked like God had big plans for him? What's he believing? Is he believing his feeling that he came up with? Or is he believing a word that came to him from outside of himself? B is the correct choice. And this is the model of faith. And it's in this way that Father Abraham had many sons. All of those who walk in faith walk in the steps of Abraham. In this way, he's a model for every believer. But of course, in this way, particularly, he's a model for the nation of Israel because he is the grandfather of Israel himself, Jacob, who became Israel. So stress this, his, his faith rested on the word of God. And in that way, he's a model. He's the model for Israel. You hear the word of God and you believe it. Letter B, let's consider the ideal of the people of Israel. Exodus 19, we just looked at that in Sunday school. Let's remind ourselves. Exodus 19, what was all of that signs and wonders in Egypt about? Well, God tells us what it was all about. They're here at the mountain of God. And God says, verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I lifted you up on eagle wings and brought you to myself. 
So now then, if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It was all about bringing them to Yahweh, to have a relationship with Yahweh. And how do you have a relationship with Yahweh? Abram taught us. How? By faith. By faith in his word. Faith that would give birth to love for God and clinging to God and walking in his ways. Now there's the ideal. Had they done that, they would have been a a, a priest to the nations. They would have spoken to the nations for God. They would have been seen to be his treasured possession. So, There's the ideal for the people of Israel. Abram, the model, faith. Israel, his special people who should have had faith. And what is the reasonable expectation from Israel? What could Jesus, what should Jesus have been reasonably able to expect? Now, let me put that back in the context. I see a fig tree. It's got leaves. What should I expect to see on that fig tree? Early fruit, at least early fruit. So what should Jesus have expected? Turn to John chapter 5 with me. Yes, please turn there. I'd like you looking at these words. John chapter 5. Very, very instructive um, encounter with the Jews. John 5. And I'll back up a little bit for a little more context. In verse 39, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. And yet you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. The very Bible they study points them to Jesus, but they won't come to Jesus. Why? Well, he goes on to say, verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And you do not seek the glory that is from the only God. Their concern was not God. They didn't believe. They didn't love God. They loved praise. They loved admiration. They loved the respect of their peers. That's all that matters. And it's like they said, none of the top people believe in Jesus. So why would they? Because that's what they really care about. But look at what he goes on to say. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus' reasonable expectation was that they would believe him en masse, as a people, that they would see him and they would hear him, and that as a nation, they would turn to him in faith. Why? Because they all said they believed in Moses. Because they studied and read Moses. And they thought that they were disciples of Moses. And that they were following the laws of Moses. And Moses wrote about him. And here he comes. And they want no part of him. Yes, yes, their talk was all great. They said all the right things. They had leaves, leaves, leaves. But no fruit. No fruit. So that's what Israel should have been. What were they in fact? Oh, we get a really vivid picture that prepares us for this in Isaiah chapter 5. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 5 with me. Boy, oh boy, does does this speak directly to the story that we're reading today. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, renewed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle, and he hewed out a wine vat, and he hoped for it to produce good good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. So now inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? Why, when I hoped for it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also command the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. 
Thus he hoped for justice. Now there's a two word plays here. <clears throat> Thus he hoped for justice, which is mishpat. But behold, bloodshed, which is mispach. Mishpat, mispach. For righteousness, which is tzedakah. But behold, a cry of distress, which is tzedakah. For tzedakah, but found tzedakah. So this, do you see a parallel here? Indeed, he'd done everything for there to be a fertile vine, and yet there were worthless grapes. And so what would he do? He'd knock it all down, tear it all up, and, and raise it, destroy it. Yikes, is that reminiscent of this situation in Matthew 21? A look at uh, Micah, if you can, uh, otherwise just listen to me. It's one of the minor prophets, a little harder to find. But Micah chapter 7 And just to read you the starting uh, words of the chapter, Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig, which my soul desires. The Holy One has perished from the land. There's no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts for others with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. And so forth and so on. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. Your punishment will come. When God, God comes and could expect, or a righteous person could expect to find figs and grapes, but instead he finds evil and corruption, then that means judgment is on the way. Well, that certainly sets us up for what we're seeing here. It's foreseen in those verses. But it's seen in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Matthew is full of this. We could spend a whole sermon just reviewing how Matthew has prepared us for this. Let's look at two places. Look at Matthew chapter 6 and remind yourself about this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And I remind you that Jesus in this portion takes on the three great displays of religion in Israel. The three great ways you showed your religion was in prayer and alms and fasting. And he takes on those three in chapter 6. But look at the way he does. Chapter 6, verse 1, Beware of doing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Therefore when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues to be glorified by men. And what's a hypocrite? It's an actor. And what did actors do in that day? They put on a mask. So that what you were seeing was not the reality. It wasn't the real thing. You saw a mask. And so people who do these godly acts, but they do it so that people will see it. They're not doing it out of faith. They're not doing it out of love for God. It's a display. Again, verse 5, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites who like making a great show of their prayers in public and ornate long prayers to be seen by men, Jesus says. See, that's the whole thing that's wrong with it. It's not out of faith and love for God. It's out of love for acclaim and for being seen a certain way. Again, verse uh, 16. Now, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. They neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men. When they're fasting, oh, they've got their reward in full. But you fast unto God, you see. So all of this was just display. It was all just a show. It was just leaves, no fruit, leaves only. Um, Chapter 6, now turn to chapter 15 for another dose of what we see so much of in the Gospel of Matthew. So chapter 15, Jesus is going on his way, but top men come to him. Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. These are the leaders. And their great concern is that he's bringing the word of God, is that he's doing the works of God. No, no. They care for none of those things. What they care about is why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? That's all they care about. They don't care that Jesus is God incarnate. They care that he's not walking by their rules. And so Jesus counters with, why do you break the commandment of God for your tradition? And he just absolutely scorches them and says, Verse 7, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commands of men. All show no reality, all leaves no fruit. 
This is what we see again and again in the Gospel of, of Matthew. We're, we're, we, we also remind ourselves of the ignored homework assignment. Do you remember Jesus gave them a homework assignment and they shined them on? Turn to Matthew chapter 9. This is very apropos. Matthew 9, verses 10 through 13. Uh, so Matthew has been called, Matthew the tax collector, and he holds a reception in his home. Verse 10 says, Many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus. And when the Pharisees saw this, they gasped to the disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus says, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Tell you what, I got a little assignment for you boys. You go and learn what this means. I desire chesed in the Old Testament. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We gave them an assignment to go and study that verse. That God didn't want just the outward box checking. Just the outward external rituals. Just leaves. He wanted the internal reality of compassion. So he gave them this assignment, an assignment from Messiah. You'd think that was important. Did they do it? They did not. Turn to chapter 12. And here's Jesus walking through the Sabbath, and his disciples are eating some along the way. And the Pharisees say, why do your disciples do what is not lawful on a Sabbath? Verse 2. And Jesus answers from Scripture and then says in verse 7, But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. They did not care about the inner reality. They felt that the outer show was sufficient, and it was not. And so you get this scorching from Jesus. We'll see it in a couple of chapters in Matthew 23. That chapter is full of scorching of the scribes and Pharisees. And what does he call them over and over? Hypocrites. Matthew 23, 5. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. Again, verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, of, and the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. All leaves, no fruit. All show, no go. No reality, or perhaps as we say in Texas, all hat, no cattle. Why was Israel like that? How had they gotten so far off? Uh, the answer is given in, in Romans uh, chapters 9 through 11. And I'm just going to turn to chapter 9, verses 31 through 33. Why Israel was that way, Romans 9. 31 through 33, but again, chapters 9 through 11 are all about this. But Paul says it in a, in a piece here. Did I say, uh, it's verses 31 through 33, in case I said that wrong. But Israel, oh, back up to 30, what shall we say? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness laid hold of righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, as Abraham taught. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not attain that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, which we saw from the start was the whole thing. Abram believed Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Faith, faith, all the way through. But they thought if they checked the external boxes, that was sufficient. So, uh, and particularly boxes of their own making through their man-made traditions. But... They did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, and then here comes the real heart of it, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and the one who believes upon him will not be put to shame. Well, who is that stumbling stone? That's the Lord Jesus, and they wanted no part of him. They would have flooded to him if they'd been walking in faith, but they wanted no part of him. So, all they produced, God wanted faith. All they produced was externalism, traditionalism, legalism, 
all leaves, no fruit. And so here's Jesus' curse. Jesus says, no longer from you let fruit come ever. And right away, the fig tree dried up. So the meaning was literally on a tree that was all leaves and no fruit. And the symbol here was, it was a judgment on the religious leadership that was all show no faith and their followers. Remember when he cleansed the temple, who did he throw out? Those who sold and those who bought. Everyone participating in this externalistic robber system. And so Jesus, he's not pronouncing judgment on his followers. He's not pronouncing judgment on the children who shouted his praises or, or the people who believe in him and walk in him. But he is, he is pronouncing judgment on the all leaves, no fruit people, the people who are all show, no go. That's the meaning. And, and it's, it's a warning. This symbolic act is a warning to them. You see about this in Luke chapter 13. He actually tells a parable that explains this to us. Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. Luke 13, 6 through 9. He says, A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it. It did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've been coming seeking fruit on this tree and not finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in manure. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. So here's about three, four years. How long was Jesus' ministry? About three, four years. And then the fig tree uh, was cut down. That's the meaning of this. And uh, finally... uh, in this portion, Matthew 21, 43. You can just note down and I'll read it to you. Matthew 21, 43. Have you never read the scriptures, this stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came from the Lord and it is marvelous in your eyes. Behold, verse 43, Behold, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. That generation was losing its opportunity. Another generation, another new, as it were, uh, renewed, converted nation of Israel would be the one receiving it. So that's the message to that generation, but I can't not ask the question, so what's the message to our generation? I mean, is there something for us here? Yes, there certainly is by way of application. I I can't not observe that no nation in history has ever had freer access to the Word of God except for the nation of Israel and the monarchy. No nation has ever had free, and they didn't have the whole Word of God. We've got the whole Word of God. All 66 books. We've got free access to it. That's been the the meaning of the foundation of this country. Freedom to worship God according to what Scripture says. Indeed, we've got churches all over the land. We've got religion all over the land. But remember what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. He says, for everyone to whom, everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, Of him will they ask all the more. Much given, much required. Much has been given to us. We see indeed much religion. We see institutions. We see denominations. All of them formed to be faithful to God and to the word of God. But what do we see today? What do we see today when we walk up to these buildings and we see these grand structures? And I also think of of England and of Europe. And you go to these buildings and they're just breathtaking. I mean, I absolutely love our church. When I first walked in, I loved it. But you know, it's not going to win an award in an architectural competition, right? I'm not saying anything mean when I say that. But these are all just works. They're stone works. They're stained glass windows. There's such artisanship and beauty. And here's this guy walks up to the pulpit and look at him. He must be a very holy man. Look at the way he's dressed, the finery, the robes, perhaps even a, a, a mitre, a crown of some sort. Boy, he must be just such a dedicated servant of God, showing all of this glory and all these leaves. 
Everywhere you look, leaves. Beautiful, gorgeous, verdant leaves. But, but what fruit? You listen. You listen for a drop of gospel. You look for just a glimmer of the glory of Christ. It's just not there. There's tradition, there's form, there's formalism, but the heart is all gone. The life is all gone. The sign is up. This is a place where God is worshipped, but no fruit on that tree. No fruit on that tree. And, and how many institutions and colleges and universities were founded ad maiorem uh, uh, gloria dei to the greater glory of God and now they're just festering swamps of humanism and man-centered nonsense and the latest fad of the day studying the works of Taylor Swift and, and, and whatnot. This is what they do when they were founded to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the leaves, but certainly no fruit. How many denominations? They bear wonderful names. They, they bear the names of godly men. But in the churches, the Lord Jesus is not lifted up. The Word of God is not proclaimed. God is not worshipped. And you, you'd think you're going to hear. You, you'd think that there's got to be fruit. All those leaves. Just leaves. Leaves only. Yes, we've talked about churches. We've talked about denominations. And how many have the most wonderful names? These churches, Redeemer this, Trinity that. Ah, but you go inside, just leaves, no fruit. But how many individual believers are also like this, professed believers, even here in Texas? Think of uh, what Ryle says, Bishop Ryle. He says, open sin and avowed unbelief no doubt slay their thousands, but profession without practice slays its tens of thousands. Form without reality. Profession of faith, but no show of faith. No heart of faith. No reality of faith. Well, the truth is that real faith always produces real fruit. And that's what we're going to focus on next week, Lord willing, what that real faith is and how it produces real fruit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, and for the vital truth that it teaches us. We pray that the Holy Spirit will send it home to our hearts, that we will hear it according to our own individual needs, and that we will hear the voice of God warning us away from mere formality and formalism and calling us to real vital heart faith. Faith that, faith that seeks and hears the word of God and clings to it, stands on it, lives it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.